Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, January 20th and Sunday, January 21st, 2024. We have a few anniversaries. On January 20th, 1981, the Iranian government celebrated Ronald Reagan's inauguration, and who wouldn't want to do that, really, uh, by ending the 444-day Iran hostage crisis with the release of 52 U.S. hostages. The release was the result of months of negotiations between the Iranians and the Carter administration, which produced the Algiers Accords, but Reagan got most of the credit for cowing the Iranians. Uh, the timing of the re release has fed October surprise conspiracy theories about secret talks between the Iranians and the Reagan campaign, uh, which may be true, but it may also simply have been a final insult to Carter, who was basically reviled in Iran due to perceived support for the ousted Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Uh, on January 20th, 2001, the nonviolent Second EDSA Revolution, or EDSA Revolution, end ended with the resignation of Philippine President Joseph Estrada and the accession of Vice President Gloria Arroyo to the presidency, not, it should be noted in that order, uh, the Philippine Senate was holding an impeachment trial for Estrada over charges of corruption, and on January 16th, it voted narrowly to suppress the contents of an envelope that would allegedly have proven the allegations sparking these protests at the EDSA shrine in Manila. By January 19th, the Philippine military and national police had abandoned Estrada and joined the protesters, and that was pretty much that. The following day, Arroyo took the oath of office at the shrine, and Estrada subsequently issued a statement announcing that while he questioned the legality of Arroyo's accession, he would, in fact, leave office. Estrada uh, was eventually convicted on corruption charges in 2007. Arroyo pardoned him. On January 21st, 763, this is the anniversary of the Battle of Bahamra, which was uh, the Abbasid Caliphate, the uh, still pretty new Abbasid Caliphate. They'd only taken power about 13 years uh, previously from the Umayyad dynasty. Uh, the Abbasids defeated their very first Shia uprising, which was sort of a rite of passage, I guess, for a new Sunni Muslim dynasty at this time. Uh, the battle is uh, noteworthy for that reason, uh, because the Abbasids... Uh, if you know anything about Abbasid history, you know that when they came to power in 750, they did so as kind of this nebulous, cryptic movement on behalf of the family of the Prophet Muhammad, which could have meant anything. And uh, a lot of Shia kind of bought into this and supported the Abbasids against the uh, reviled, by this point, Umayyads. But then the Abbasids actually got power and came out of their uh, sort of behind-the-scenes cryptic nonsense and declared what they were, and it was not Shia. So the uh, Shia or proto-Shia at this point, it's still unclear if you could call them uh, Shia in the modern sense, but they uh, they began to rebel against this new dynasty, just as they had done repeatedly against the old one. This one is, this rebellion, interestingly, for people who follow contemporary events, is sometimes classified as a Zaydi Shia rebellion. If you know Zaydism, it is the uh, branch of Shiism that is practiced by the Houthis in Yemen. And uh, that's a bit of a misnomer. There wasn't really a Zaydi Shiism at this time. It was still very much coalescing. Uh, but the Zaydis do claim uh, the uh, leaders of this uprising, uh, a man uh, named Muhammad Anafsa Zakia, uh, in particular, who claim to be the Mahdi, uh, they do claim him as an imam. So technically, I guess uh, you could say that this was uh, a Zaydi 
uprising, I guess, if you want to be a little anachronistic about it. Um, on January 21st, 1793, of course, we could not let the day go past without commemorating the day that, having been found guilty of treason by the National Convention, French King Louis XVI was executed by guillotine. His death marked what at the time surely seemed like the end of the French monarchy, although Napoleon and then the restored Bourbons had something to say about that. Uh, it also shocked even some fans of the French Revolution, and that shock may have contributed to the support for restoring the Bourbons uh, to the throne when all was said and done. Uh, moving on to the news, we start in the Middle East, as always, with Israel-Palestine, as always these days anyway. The official death toll in Gaza since the October 7th militant attacks in southern Israel surpassed 25,000 over the weekend, despite rhetorical nods toward an eventual end to the conflict, or at least a shift to a less violent phase of the Israeli military's or IDF operation from both U.S. and Israeli officials. There is no indication of any transition, let alone conclusion, on the horizon. According to the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. intelligence community estimates that the IDF IDF has, quote, killed 20% to 30% of Hamas's fighters, end quote, amid those 25,000 deaths. Given that Israeli leaders have made Hamas's full elimination their stated goal, at this pace they'll need, in theory, to kill between 80,000 and 125,000 Palestinians to be able to claim total success. And that's assuming that the current pace will remain constant, when in reality intensifying threats like famine and disease are likely to increase the rate of death in Gaza substantially over the coming weeks and months. While I would like to think that the U.S. government would at some point say enough is enough amid such a slaughter, the Biden administration has given me no reason to believe that would be the case. Uh, in other news, Hamas interestingly released a report over the weekend that is probably the closest it will come to acknowledging any misdeeds on October 7th. The report argues that the attacks uh, of that day in principle were a justified response to the Israeli occupation, but does allow that, quote, maybe some faults happened, end quote. That's very generous of them. Uh, it blames those faults on the collapse of Israeli security forces around Gaza and insists uh, that any violence against civilians was carried out accidentally amid the chaos. Uh, while accusing Israeli security forces uh, of killing many uh, of the civilians who died during the, the rampage. Uh, the report seems to endorse the idea of an international criminal court investigation uh, into atrocities committed on and since October 7th, though Hamas's leaders must know that's something the Israeli government will never count in, and so it's an easy concession for them to make. Whether you give any credence to this report or not, and it's obviously a self-serving version of events, it's interesting that Hamas put it together. It seems intended to ratchet up international pressure on Israel by making Hamas, I guess, appear to be the more reasonable party. I, I think that's the aim. Uh, who knows? The Israeli government announced the death of another hostage on Sunday without going into much detail, as far as I know. Uh, amid increasing public pressure to cut a deal, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu stressed that he rejects Hamas's prisoner release conditions, which include a ceasefire and an all-for-all -all swap of its prisoners for Palestinians in Israeli custody. The IDF dropped leaflets on the southern Gaza city of Rafah on Saturday, asking people there to provide information on the whereabouts of the remaining hostages. Something tells me most of them aren't going to be interested in helping the country that is presently trying to starve them, but I could be wrong. Uh, Israeli security forces on Friday killed a Palestinian-American teenager in the West Bank. The Biden administration said that it was, quote, seriously concerned, end quote, with reports of this incident, a claim that rings as hollow as every other statement it's offered about Palestinian civilian casualties. 
Uh, and HuffPost reported this weekend on the effect the Israeli siege is having on pregnant women and newborns in Gaza, while the Biden administration con- continues to pat itself on the back for improving humanitarian conditions in Gaza. The reality is that they're getting worse, and the amount of aid coming in is still far too little to meet the need. Premature births are on the rise without the necessary hospital facilities to care for the infants, and newborns are starving along with their mothers. The December United Nations Security Council resolution that called for a surge in humanitarian relief apparently hasn't had much of an impact. I know that's shocking. Uh, The French Navy has moved a helicopter carrier to the region for use as a hospital ship, and that may help a bit, but it's not nearly enough. Western governments are trying to convince Israeli leaders to allow Gaza aid to come through the port of Ashdod, uh, but while they've acquiesced to bringing some flour in that way, they are resisting anything bigger. In Iraq, uh, Iraqi militias attacked Ain al-Assad Air Base with, quote, multiple ballistic missiles and rockets, end quote, on Saturday, according to U.S. Central Command. The attack was apparently large enough to overwhelm the base's air defenses, and CENTCOM reported that a number of personnel at the base were wounded. The size of the strike, the use of ballistic missiles, and the fact that the militia's uh, Islamic resistance in Iraq umbrella group openly claimed responsibility for the attack all speak to some degree of escalation in the militia's attacks against U.S. personnel in Iraq. Uh, in Syria, the attack on Ain al-Assad was likely meant as a retaliation for an apparent Israeli missile strike that killed at least five members of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Damascus uh, on Saturday. Uh, the Iranian government characterized them as military advisors uh, to the Syrian government and threatened retribution against Israel. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights has put the death toll at 13, including the five Iranians and at least one Syrian civilian, and says the target was the IRGC's head of intelligence in Syria who was among the dead. The strike may in turn have been meant as retaliation for the attack that the IRGC carried out on what it said was a Mossad facility in the Iraqi city of Erbil uh, back on Monday, you may recall. Uh, In Lebanon, Israeli strikes in southern Lebanon killed at least two Hezbollah personnel over the weekend. A strike on Saturday killed one Hezbollah member and another Lebanese national, according to Reuters. On Sunday, another Israeli strike killed at least one Hezbollah member and a second person who was either a civilian woman or a second Hezbollah member, depending on which uh, version of the story you believe. Uh, One came from uh, the AP, the other one came from Reuters. Uh, Given the difficulty of confirming details about these kinds of incidents, it's also possible the strike killed three people, two Hezbollah members and one civilian, but I am purely speculating about that. Uh, In Yemen, the U.S. military attacked another Houthi missile site in northern Yemen on Saturday, the third straight day it had undertaken such a strike. Uh, Having neither deterred the Houthis from attacking ships in the Red Sea nor meaningfully degraded their ability to do so since beginning this tete-a-tete a a bit over a week ago, uh, the Washington Post is reporting that, quote, the Biden administration is crafting plans for a sustained military campaign, end quote, against them. So a war then, uh, because that's usually what we call open-ended military campaigns, unless the terminology has changed and I missed the memo. Uh, And at this point, I think it's fair to ask, and I do apologize because I try to keep these uh, newsletters clean. Uh, But it's fair to ask, I think, if anybody in this administration has any idea what in the fuck it's trying to achieve here. Uh, A new new U.S. war in the Middle East. Yes, I know the United States has been bombing Yemen on and off for over 20 years and was a material participant in Saudi Arabia's war against the Houthis, but this still feels new, uh, is undoubtedly just what the region needs and what U.S. voters crave. Uh, I don't want to cast aspersions, but this particular war, which risks human lives in defense of speedy product delivery through the Suez Canal and in order 
to shield the Israeli government from any sort of consequence from its war of annihilation in Gaza is probably not going to go down in the Noble Cause Hall of Fame. So why fight it? What is the upside? Uh, the Biden administration professes to worry about Gaza triggering a cascade of war that sweeps across the Middle East. But instead of doing one fairly simple thing that might prevent that, telling the proxy state that depends on its weapons to cease and desist its war, a war even the president of the United States acknowledges as being fought indiscriminately, the administration is leaning into the escalation it claims it wants to avoid. Uh, can anyone currently working for Joe Biden explain the thinking here in a way that would make sense to anyone who whose brain hasn't been boiled in U.S. foreign policy conventional wisdom for the last 40 years? Uh, I doubt it. In Iran, an Iranian soldier reportedly shot and killed five of his fellow soldiers in the city of Kerman on Sunday. The alleged shooter has not yet been captured, as far as I know, and the issue of motive is still up in the air. But Kerman is the same city where an Islamic State claimed bombing killed more than 90 people earlier this month. I have no idea if there's any reason to connect those things, but I suppose it can't be ruled out either. On Saturday, Iranian state media reported that the IRGC had successfully put a satellite called Soraya into low Earth orbit. If that holds up, it will mark a significant milestone for the IRGC's space program. It's unclear what the satellite does. I have seen unconfirmed reporting calling it a telecommunications satellite, but it's entirely possible that it's some kind of spy satellite or just a test dummy or something else altogether. Uh, the U.S. government maintains that Iranian space activity is prohibited under U.N. resolutions because it serves the dual purpose of advancing Iran's ballistic missile program. On to Asia and Indonesia. A new poll from the firm Indicator has Indonesian Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto widening his lead ahead of next month's presidential election. This survey puts Prabowo at 48.6% support after two previous Indicator polls showed him flatlining at 45.8%. The increase, if it's real, could put him in the ballpark for an outright first-round victory. Former Jakarta Governor Anies Baswedan saw his support slide a bit from 25.5% to 24.2%. In Taiwan, according to the New York Times, an increasing number of Taiwanese citizens are beginning to question the reliability of their country's biggest patron. Uh, I'll read you a bit of this piece. Vice President Lao Ching-te of the Democratic Progressive Party won Taiwan's presidential election this month in part because he looked like the candidate most likely to keep America close. Pre-election polling showed that most people in Taiwan want stronger relations despite the risk of provoking China. They support the recent rise in weapons sales from the United States. They believe President Biden is committed to defending the island, but they worry it is not enough. As they watch Washington deadlock on military aid for Ukraine and Israel and try to imagine what the United States would actually do for Taiwan in a crisis, faith in America is plummeting. The same Taiwanese poll showing support for the U.S. approach found that only 34% of respondents saw the United States as a trustworthy the country down from 45% in 2021. Now, uh, this is me again. Some of this hangover, uh, some of this is a, a hangover, believe it or not, from the U.S. government shifting recognition from Taipei to Beijing in the 1970s, which has left, I think, a number of Taiwanese folks just generally distrustful. Not even, you know, people who've been born since then who didn't live through that, still not entirely sure they can trust the United States. But the the shift there in that polling seems more likely the result of uh, even a cursory glance at the catastrophic state of contemporary U.S. politics. Uh, the skepticism, certainly, as the, the piece notes, appears to be having its own effect on Taiwanese politics. 
Uh, and on to Africa and Sudan, where at least 10 civilians were killed on Saturday when their bus reportedly struck a landmine in northern Sudan's River, River Nile state. Incredibly, this may be the first landmine incident in Sudan since the country's military went to war with the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces group back in April. And of course, neither side is claiming responsibility for placing the device. In Senegal, the Senegalese government on Saturday released a final list of 20 candidates for next month's presidential election. Unsurprisingly, the list includes Prime Minister Amadou Ba, incumbent Macky Sall's chosen successor. It does not, however, include Ba's most prominent uh, potential challenger, uh, Ziguinchor Mayor, I hope I'm not butchering that too badly, Osman Sonko. Uh, Senegal's Constitutional Council apparently disqualified him over past legal trouble. Uh, it's unclear how much hostility this might engender among Sonko's supporters. Much of the concern about potential unrest attending this election dissipated when Saul announced back in July that he would not attempt to run for a legally dubious third term. And at this point, there doesn't seem to be much consensus as to a favorite. In Somalia, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Sisi hosted his Somali counterpart Hassan Sheikh Mohamud in Cairo this weekend, and on Sunday he expressed strong support for Somalia in its new grievance with the Ethiopian government over the status of the secessionist Somaliland region. Egypt already has its own running grievance with Ethiopia over concerns about the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam and its impact on Nile River water levels, so it is not surprising that Sisi has come out on Somalia's side, but this adds another potential dimension to what could very quickly become a region-wide crisis over the Ethiopia-Somaliland port deal. In Europe, in Russia, the firm, the Russian energy firm Novatech announced on Sunday that it is suspending some of its operations at an oil and gas terminal in northern Russia's Leningrad Oblast. That facility was apparently targeted by a Ukrainian drone strike, perhaps using the long-range drone that Ukrainian officials are claiming uh, to have developed, which we uh, talked about, I believe, uh, in Thursday's newsletter, that's correct. Uh, the attack sparked a fire in part of the facility, but there were no casualties reported. Uh, and in Ukraine, authorities in Russian-occupied Donetsk City say that Ukrainian shelling struck a suburban market there on Sunday, killing at least 27 people and wounding another 25. Elsewhere, the Russian military said its forces had taken the small village of Krachmalnya in Ukraine's Kharkiv Oblast. Uh, Ukrainian officials described its loss as temporary. And in the Americas, finally, in the United States, in a piece uh, that was written bef before the launching of airstrikes against the Houthis when the Biden administration was only still considering the idea of taking military action against them, uh, Edward Hunt at Foreign Policy in Focus tried to understand the administration's priorities. And I'm going to read you a bit from the end of his piece. While officials in Washington weigh their options, they are doing little to address the core issue, which is Israel's ongoing military campaign in Gaza. The Biden administration opposes a ceasefire, even as it repeatedly demands that the Houthis end their attacks on commercial vessels in the Red Sea. Essentially, the Biden administration is engaging in a form of imperial management as it works, it works to help Israel continue its military campaign in Gaza while limiting its effects on regional dynamics and global markets. Rather than backing a ceasefire, the Biden administration is hoping to minimize the repercussions of Israel's offensive for the global economy and contain any movement toward a wider war. What the Biden administration has shown, in short, is that it cares far more about protecting fossil fuels and the world's most powerful businesses than it does about protecting the people of Gaza. 
Uh, I don't entirely agree with uh, that, but I think the final sentiment is undeniable. Uh, I can't think of, at this point, anything that the Biden administration cares for less than the people of Gaza. So uh, that's that's about right. And on that note, that's all for us this weekend. I hope you had a good one. Uh, thanks for reading and or listening to the newsletter. And certainly thanks to all of you who are Foreign Exchanges subscribers. I wouldn't be able to do this newsletter without you. Until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.